often write a lot of backstory. I write it. And the more I do of that, of the person's story before the novel really begins, the more I do, the more I really feel like I know that character because their history inhabits my mind. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Amy Belding Brown, author of Mr. Emerson's Wife, Flight of the Sparrow, and her newest novel, Emily's House. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I love, and I love the research. I love the digging in and finding out things I didn't know before. Amy Belding Brown graduated from Bates College in the late 1960s and went on to receive her MFA degree in 2002 from Vermont College. Since then, she's taught writing at Worcester State University, Fitchburg State University, Granite State College, and the Worcester Institute for Senior Education. A lifelong history lover, she has also worked as an educator and historical interpreter at Orchard House Museum in Concord, Massachusetts. It was at that time she began to marry fiction and history. In 2005, her novel Mr. Emerson's Wife was published by St. Martin's Press. Flight of the Sparrow was published by New American Library in July 2014. Her latest novel, Emily's House, published by Berkeley, was released in August 2021. Well, I'd like to start with your main character in Emily's House, Margaret Marr. Um, how did you choose her as your main character rather than the enigmatic Emily Dickinson? Well, I, I first thought I was going to write about Emily Dickinson because she's fascinating. And I didn't, there's a lot about her I didn't know. Um, she's always been sort of in the background of my life in, a, in strange sorts of ways. But um, so my first thought when I was going to write a novel about her was her sister-in-law's um, very interesting life, Sue Dickinson, and her husband, Austin Dickinson, and Austin Dickinson's affair with um, Mabel Loomis Todd. Uh, Sue Dickinson and Emily Dickinson were very close. Uh, some people even suggest they may have been lovers at some point. Um, so whether that's true or not, I don't know. But anyways, I started just researching all this, like everything I could get my hands-on about Emily and the Dickinson family. It was very interesting. But then I happened to read the book uh, Made as Muse, and that's where I encountered Margaret Marr. And she's the uh, she's the maid, the live-in maid that worked for the Dickinson family starting in 1869 until 
for about 30 years. And she was there, um, right, and she was there through Emily Dickinson's death and on. And the more I read, the more interesting it got because I learned that she, um, that Emily Dickinson had asked her, had asked Margaret to burn her poems when she died, to burn Emily's poems. And Margaret apparently promised to do that because that was her wish. And she hid them in her trunk. Um, so nobody in the family knew that there were all these poems. They knew there were, she'd written some poems, but they didn't know the extent of it. And she decided um, not to burn them. And so if she followed through on her mistress's instructions, we wouldn't even have them at all. So that's an interesting fact. It's recorded in Sue Dickinson, uh, not Sue Dickinson, Sue Dickinson's daughter's account, uh, so Emily's niece, uh, Martha. Uh, she wrote about that incident because she was a witness to it when Margaret confessed that she'd done this and she felt really guilty because she hadn't followed Emily's instructions. Um, so that's well documented. I thought that was interesting. And I also found out that she um, saved, the family had thrown out the one picture we have that we know uh, was Emily Dickinson, the daguerreotype. Uh, apparently the family had thrown it in the trash and Emily apparently herself didn't like it. And uh, Margaret rescued that from the trash and later produced it when they were looking for, when they were publishing her poems after her death and looking for um, an image of her. So I found that she was very interesting. She was, um, an, she'd come from Ireland, um, emigrated to the United States in about 1855, we think, with her sister and two brothers. And like, after which is post-potato famine, she lived through the potato famine. She was about 13 or 14 when she came to America. And she worked as a live-in maid um, for a family called Boltwood in, in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, for several years before she became uh, hired by the Dickinsons. And at the time she was hired by the Dickinsons, she was um, planning to go to California <laughs> to join her two younger brothers who were out in California um, lo looking for gold and silver and mines and striking it rich, I guess. She wanted to join them. So that's a short answer. To, uh, I mean, that's a long answer to your short question. Well, she, she is a fascinating individual, um, both the contribution she ended up making to literature and just her, her background as an Irish immigrant at that time. So I can see why you chose her as your main character. Were you surprised that she hadn't been, you know, that maybe she was overlooked by history? Yeah, well, uh, yes and no. Um, I found that, for one thing, a lot of women are overlooked in, by history, a lot of influential women, um, be, mostly up until fairly recently, because most of the histories are written by men, I guess. Um, and also, and just men seem to be the ones that make the decisions and all of that in our culture and our society. Uh, but also... Um, people who don't have a lot of money and people who 
work workers um, tend to get lost. Most histories written, I mean, we start with like history of um, kings and queens and important, prominent political people and all of that. There's a lot of stuff out there by them, but not a lot by people who were just regular workers and um, servants and certainly slaves. Uh, so I find I find that very interesting. And uh, my first historical novel uh, about Lydian Emerson, while she was not poor, she was not a servant, um, and she for her time she was an educated woman, but she was uh, has been overlooked in the biographies of of Emerson of Ralph Waldo Emerson. So I I thought. Um, you know, that's sort of a thing of mine that I, I like to find somewhat obscure women uh, as as my protagonists. When I found um, Margaret, she just really intrigued me. She had such an interesting background and she was, and from what I could read of her, she was a, a person with a lot of um, energy and drive and, fair, you know, fairly strong opinions about things. Emily Dickinson described her as noisy and the north wind. And I think she was very fond of her, but but she was disruptive to the sort of staid, almost puritanical Dickinson household. At least that's the image you get when you read Emily's letters. So it, so that so I, I found her a fascinating character from that point of view. Yeah, she's she's a wonderful character. You know, I, I can't speak to who she was in real life, but you certainly brought her to life in your novel. I'm curious about your research. Um, you mentioned in your author's note that there's you had to balance the bias between the papers of Mabel Loomis Todd and the reminiscences of Emily's niece, Martha. Can you talk about why why it was skewed toward one direction and, and how are you, you were able to balance that bias? I, I hope I felt, I mean, you know, I, I felt when I started reading the story um, and found that Mabel Loomis Todd, she was a young, when she came to Amherst as a young professor's wife, very um, charismatic woman, very talented, beautiful, um, and she caught the imagination of a lot of people in Amherst, but eventually she caught the imagination of Austin Dickinson, who was uh, old enough to be her father and was it's sort of a, and he was a, a father himself, and with a wife, uh, who and a very high status in the community, and uh, apparently they fell in love, and um, Mabel, I, I, Mabel Lewis Todd gets a lot of credit, um, and deservedly so up to a point, but the more I read about her as a wife myself, um, I just started to feel like she's the kind of woman you'd rather not see come to your town and have fasten her attention on your husband. So I, so I kind of was looked, maybe I was looking for some, uh, you know, the, on the other side of the story, but her, because she had control for so long of the Dickinson papers um, and the Dickinson narrative and she, what she wrote about Susan Dickinson uh, she, it was very skewed, and she was the other woman, and she had big, um, a lot of resentment and anger towards the wife of her lover. 
So I, I think that, you know, kind of, I just looked at it from a different side. And it, um, so the image of Susan Dickinson, I felt has been um, maligned, but I was also looking for things. So Martha Dickinson, Maddie, um, who is Susan's daughter, she wrote later, she wrote about, after Mabel Loomis Todd, she wrote about the family, the Dickinson family. And I, and sort of in my mind anyways, redeemed, an attempt, I think, to redeem her, her mother's reputation, which Mabel Loomis Todd had sort of trashed. Well, I, I just think that it's it's very interesting to hear about the, your process as sort of a historian first and then as a historical fiction author because you have to go through the sources and figure out you know what's um what's the true and accurate history before then you can decide how do you want to portray it in in your novel and so i just found that interesting um how you wanted to balance some of those historical elements in creating these characters but it's it's a good question i I know different writers have different processes, and and my, I tend to do a fair amount of reading, but at a certain point in in my um, process, when I just especially once I've decided who my protagonist is, I start to write, even though I don't have the whole story, even though there's a lot of research um, left for me to do, uh, and that writing process helps me. It, it, for me, it brings the character alive. Um, and so at that point, once that starts to happen, I get a sense of who this character is. There's a sense in which the character takes over to some extent. So I don't sit down and think, like, this is what I want to do. I want to redeem Susan Dickinson's, um, uh, Susan Dickinson's reputation. Or, that isn't, I don't sit down and think of, like, what I want it to be, it sort of happens in the process, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think maybe I can see that in chapter one of Emily's House. You write it in the first person um, from Margaret's perspective later in life. Was that something you intended? I mean, was that just a practice at writing that worked its way into the novel, or is that something you intended all along? I, I, no, it doesn't start that way. I experiment a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. um so i i do a lot of which means i do a lot of drafts i in this case i had actually yeah i started that writing but then the i have what i think of as framing chapters they're not just but it's not just the first and the last chapter it's also some it chapters sort of as interludes that go into that later uh, older margaret later voice and they're 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 interspersed throughout the novel so it comes in and out of that it's almost like a parallel little story um, of what's going on later in her life so yeah I like the retrospective um, and her voice seemed very strong to me her 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 personality seemed strong to me so going um, t- how she's going to tell her story because her backstory for me, it was quite interesting. Um, and a lot of that didn't actually make it into the final um, draft because just for reasons of length and 
although I found it very interesting. Um, that's a, that's another thing I do in my process is I have, often write a lot of backstory. I write it. Um, and the more I do of that, of the person's story before the novel really begins, the more I do, the more I really feel like I know that character because their history inhabits my mind. It inhabits my, who I bring to the, who she is. So I, I know her story, even though it doesn't appear on the page, all of it. It helps to inform her all. It's not as much of a, it's an intuitive process for me. Sure. It's not just sitting down and um, figuring it out intellectually. Well, I want to ask a little bit about Emily Dickinson. Um, you said that you had kind of, or you wrote that you had fallen under her spell. What do you think is so intriguing about Emily Dickinson? And I also wanted to pull out one line. When you first introduce her in the novel, she makes she she mocks Margaret with, with her accent. And I laughed so hard at that. <laughs> and, and I just wondered, did Emily have a sense of humor, you, do you think? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure she did. Yeah, in fact... I think yes, I think that's pretty well documented. But she, it wasn't. She wasn't always nice. She was a sort of, sort of. The Dickinson family used to make sarcastic remarks and about people they didn't like, and or you know, not necessarily if they didn't like, but that was just that was their sense of humor. I'm sure part of it was a New England humor, um, but part of it was just this sort of, sort of sarcastic thing. And particularly the three children, I think, did this. Emily and her brother and. Um, and Lavinia when they were young, or not even just when they were young, but I think there was a lot of that. And and you said you, you've kind of been drawn to Emily Dickinson for most of your life. Can you speak more about that? Yeah, I actually um, I actually share an ancestor with Emily Dickinson. Oh, There's wow. Dickinson's in my line. Um, of course, she herself didn't have any descendants, but, um, but there, so there's that. And it's because... I think a lot of people who've, whose roots go far back in New England are kind of connected. So it's not as, as strange as it might sound. But, um, but my roots do go back uh, to the 1600s in New England. And um, th then, so there's that. Then my, um, f my family, um, when they came over in the 1600s, started in Connecticut and went kind of worked their way up the Connecticut uh, River Valley and went uh, eventually ended up in Vermont, but then they came back to Northampton. And that was in my, a couple of generations before my father. So my, so my father was born in, in Northampton um, and eventually he went to Amherst College and he was the first in his family to go to college and so it was a big deal, and he was a very proud alum of Amherst. So that was something I learned. <laughs> I learned about Amherst very early, not just the college, but we would visit the college. We'd visit the town um, once every once in a while, often when we went down to visit my grandmother in Northampton. So all that area is familiar. I didn't, Emily Dickinson, I always found, um, I guess like a lot of like high school students, you, you encounter Emily Dickinson and 
I some stuff I understood and some I didn't. And she never particularly uh, grabbed my attention as a poet when I was quite young like that. But later I did, and my aunt, who I dedicated the book to, um, was a huge fan of Emily Dickinson, knew and knew would quote her poetry to me. So once I started, um, decided that I was going to write a novel with Emily Dickinson in it, I did a lot of reading of the of her poems, and I won't say I read every one, but I read an awful lot of them. And I've many, many that I've never, I'd never heard before, I'd never read. And I found them very difficult, some of them. Some of them are sort of light, but there's a lot of them that just make, made me scratch my head. And I found that I could only read a few at a time and I'd have to reread them to really kind of get them. But the way she used language was stunning. And I, you know, I just found myself, rather than being able to, really grasp her she just seemed to elude my grasp and my she just seemed uh really incredible in the way she uses language yeah it's certainly something to admire and maybe even aspire to if, if possible <laughs> um so tell me more about your path to fiction you 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 worked as an educator and museum interpreter um what what brought you to eventually decide to write fiction um, I actually wanted to write fiction as long as I can remember. I remember at the age of, like, by the time I was in third and fourth grade, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I was one of those kids, even quite young, who had my nose in a book all the time. And I was, by the time I was in fourth grade, I was writing little little stories. I mean, they weren't any good, you know, but writing and illustrating stories. And that went on. I grew up in small towns. I, we did... My family did move around the state of Vermont, but um, they were small towns wherever we went. And um, and then, and some teachers thought my stuff was good. You know, it was that kind of thing. My parents were supportive, um, and certainly my aunt was. But um, when I was uh, a freshman in high school, I had a teacher, a ninth grade teacher. She was only there for a year. This was in Proctor High School in the western part of Vermont. And she and she really took me under her wing, gave me extra time out of her day, um, read, read my stuff, gave me feedback, suggested books to read. It was just really, really wonderful. And even that, she was there for one year, and then she went off to the Peace Corps. And it was, so I... But she was one of those people that um, just set, uh, she just made a huge impact on my life. As many people have that experience uh, with teachers, not everybody, but I was lucky in that regard. Um, so that was, that was really supportive. I did write things that got published in the local uh, poems that were published in the Rutland Herald newspaper, which they probably don't do anymore. This was a long time ago. And I won some prizes for young children's writing, or not children's writing, but young people's writing in the state. Um, then I went off to college. and I, I was um, intimidated by the English department at Bates College, uh, which I think, I don't blame them now looking back, but uh, my freshman English 
professor was, uh, I'm sure, at least he sounded and acted like he was really bored with teaching freshmen. I kind of get it, but anyways, and um, and and so he uh, and so and I didn't. The grades weren't that. He seemed to be, from my point of view, he seemed to be mostly interested in my punctuation and things like that, which I I didn't I considered. You know, it wasn't that they weren't important, but that was not what I was trying to get at when I was writing. It was the words. It was always the words. And so um, so after that, I decided, which I had gone to college, assuming I'd be an English major. At that point, I switched to sociology um, because I was very interested in anthropology and other cultures and things like that. So uh, I, I sometimes, sometimes I've regretted it, and sometimes I felt like maybe I... I dodged a bullet um, because sometimes people who go through English programs like that come out intimidated with that. They just feel like they can't accomplish what they want because the standards are so high. So anyways, that's what, that's what happened to me. <laughs> well, it's certainly interesting to look back and to, to see the impact that teachers have on, on mm-hmm. us and, and the decisions we make. I actually work as a teacher and, you know, when you're doing the day to the day to day, especially in the last year here, it's hard to, oh. you know, you don't have the benefit of that hindsight, and and you don't know the impact you have on on students. So I think that's that's great that you had a, a teacher that could uh, get that from you and and right. brought you to where you are now. Uh, I want to ask about uh, something you you wrote. You said it saddens me that we don't seem to have learned very much from our experience. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that and also talk about what can readers do you think what can they learn from historical fiction and what can they learn in particular from your historical fiction? Where the quote was from the book? I, I don't remember now. Okay, where I'm sorry. Yeah, my, I mean, my, that's my guess is because when I at least when I started the book, there was a great concern with. Um, you know the 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 whole idea of immigration um, was had turned around from what I was used to growing up and in most of my adult life, where I always thought of America as a country that welcomed immigrants. And when um, the last administration came in and started um, feeling that they were the enemy, that was alarming to me. It was upsetting, and. But digging into this history with Margaret, you know, I saw very much the same thing. Uh, the same year that she came um, to America was the year that the Know Nothing Party um, had gained prominence in Massachusetts, and the, and their governor was Know Nothing, and that was an anti-immigrant nativist um, party. Didn't last very long there that administration, but it was there for a while, and so I found that a lot of echoes. And then what, uh, how do you think you can, can share those stories, those immigrant stories or, or stories of the native peoples um, in the Eastern region there? How do you think your historical fiction kind of shares those stories and helps readers learn? Well, I, I don't think, I don't approach it as like, I'm going to write a book that will convince people um, how to think like me, but I do. I do try to inhabit the people and try to bring as, as close a possible experience as possible an experience to the reader of what it was like to live there. My sympathies, I guess, are probably fairly transparent where they 
where they lie. Um, but a writer does have the opportunity to shape um, some of those where your sympathy is going to lie, like what kind of character you're going to care about. And I've, I've done that. I think probably the Flight of the Sparrow, it's um, a little more prominent, prominently featured um, my concern for Native American people in that book. But I don't, I don't approach it like I'm going to teach a lesson. So although I love, I was never, my son is a history teacher, my youngest son. So I, and I love talking about history with him, but um, I don't think, although if I have taught it, I don't think I'm the best teacher. <laughs> I come from a line of teachers, but it's not my thing exactly. So I admire people who can do it. Well, do you find it as a bit of a learning experience for you, the things that come out through your research? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I love, and I love the research. I love the digging in and finding out things I didn't know before. And the other side of history that we don't get, um, we don't get taught. It gets overlooked or buried in the sort of national narrative. Um, you can find those things um, out by, by really digging into the material. Well, in addition to being an author, I also see that you're a bit of a photographer. Uh, tell us about Eden's Innuendos, your WordPress blog. Oh, that's that actually started when I started getting interested in Emily, writing something about her, and I wanted to pair her poems with photos. Um, I've just liked to do it. I've liked to do it for as long as I can remember just taking pictures. I'm not, I'm not a professional at all. Um, my uncle, um, the husband of my aunt, who the book's dedicated to, was, I mean, he did it part-time. He did some professional photography. And I think I learned some things from him, but I just like to do it. And I love being outside and capturing nature. I, um, a lot of my Instagram feed has my nature pictures on it. Well, they're, they're beautiful photos, but I, I guess you could say nature does most of the work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, what are you working on next? Oh, well, I'm just starting. Um, so I'm not, it's not t terribly well shaped yet, but I think I'm, because I've done books in different time periods. I like to vary the time periods um, that I work in. So it's not the same time every, with every book. So I'm looking at the American Revolution, and I'm looking at Vermont, um, and the period when Ethan Allen was uh, big in the state. The period of Vermont went Vermont history, where um, it was the Revolution, and also Vermont's emergence as it became an independent republic between, I think it was 1777 and 1791 when it joined the the United States as the 14th state at that point. So I'm in, interested in that. Do you find yourself doing your, your research digitally nowadays, or do, do you go to the library or historical society? I Well, it's kind of all of the above. I do a lot digitally, yeah, more and more each with each book, I think. Mm -hmm. um, this I, Libraries haven't been open, and I'm also living in an area where a lot of the books I want are not easily available in the local libraries, I, although they have interlibrary loans. And I have bought some secondhand books and I've got my hands on books on the area. Um, I also haven't 
really done too much yet with the historical societies and societies. And the other thing I have yet to do, um, I would probably have done it earlier in this uh, process if not for COVID, but I would like to travel to the place um, where the locations and get a real sense of the landscape and, and kind of soak that up. So Sure. Well, I've been talking with Amy Belding Brown, author of Mr. Emerson's Wife, Flight to the Sparrow, and her newest novel, Emily's House. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, inviting me.